Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast, where we sit down with everyday people who do extraordinary things. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Hey, everybody. Before we start this podcast, I just wanted to say a big thanks to Sail Junkie, which is a blog sort of magazine, and uh, Mike D., the creator of that, because I was peeling through it this morning and I read the article about boatyards and marinas and all that sort of stuff and his experiences and uh it sent me off on a tangent got me on the old mic and uh i wanted to uh talk about it a little bit so appreciate that and uh it's definitely worth checking out if you like sort of sailing stories information all that sort of stuff uh it's really pretty cool so sailjunkie.com very very cool stuff other than that i just ramble on here for uh, a good 45 minutes and then throw on uh, a little story about Alfred Johnson. So please enjoy the podcast. And uh, yeah, as I always say, if you want to support the show, head over to Patreon. The link will be in the description. Here we go. Good morning from the great state of Michigan in the woodland regions of northern lower Michigan, to be more precise. Oh, man, I was just uh, flipping through the old the old phone having my coffee and such and i went on to sail junkie my favorite little sailing blog and uh got into a pretty neat little article by the creator mike d <clears throat> and uh he was talking about marinas it's uh it's actually pretty interesting he goes into depth about having his boat in the marina and looking for other marinas and all the, the ups and downs of that sort of living and got me thinking that I've, I've had to, I've had to go through a whole lot of that stuff. And, uh, I think the, the most pertinent part of that article is that it's actually, it's, it's not just a cut and dry sort of thing when it comes to choosing what Marina you're going to go to and what sort of amenities and what sort of, uh, I don't know, I guess really just what sort of things you're capable of doing because the marina world has, uh, I think, changed quite a bit over the last few decades. And I'm not 100% sure why that is. I do know uh, from speaking with dock masters uh, up and down the East Coast, a lot of it has to do with big corporate entities uh, buying up marinas and sort of imposing their draconian rules uh, that they have to because they're a giant corporation instead of just a, you know, locally owned mom and pop sort of uh, marina business. And, you know, I'll, I'll say right now that I definitely lean towards the mom and pop places just because they... Uh, they seem to be a heck of a lot more friendly. I think I think if I were going to base a decision of where to sort of keep Sparrow and myself, because I am what you would consider a liveaboard, uh, because Sparrow is my home and has been for years now, um, I, I definitely base it first and foremost on whether or not I can stay on my boat on the dock. I mean, it, it boggled my mind when I when I got back from the trip around the world and started trying to figure out what the heck I'm going to do next, 
you know, initially I went down to the Caribbean and the Caribbean, you know, it's on the hook all the time. So I'm just anchored and you don't have to really worry about that that much uh, there. One, I didn't have any money. And two, all I was doing was writing that book. So, you know, the options didn't come in. But the following year, I ended up trying to figure out what the heck and where I could go and all that because I was in, you know, on the East Coast and I was going to stay in the States and do presentations and all that sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, to my chagrin, I found that uh, a lot of places just don't, uh, they don't let you actually stay on your boat on the dock. They don't want quote unquote tenants. Uh, and I guess, you know, I can see in, I could see both sides of that argument as far as sometimes, uh, us vagabonds are not uh, all that desirable. I've run into quite a few of us along my, along my path where I'm sort of like, geez, okay, so there are quite a few of us that are just bums, and we don't really do anything, we don't contribute, and we sort of leech off society. <laughs> and I've probably done my share of that, I'll admit that. But uh, yeah, I don't know, It's uh, it really is one of those things where if if you can't live aboard in a marina, well then it's, <clears throat> for me, it's just chalked off the list. It's uh, and there's, there's just no reason to go there um, if you're you know, in a town and like, I'm up here in Petoskey and we have a nice marina down in our little town and it's a city owned marina and I'm not a hundred percent sure. It'd actually be kind of interesting to find out, but I have a feeling they don't do the whole live aboard thing. And sometimes they'll, you know, occasionally you can, you can sleep on your boat, but it's, there's a difference between, you know, once a week or once every couple of weeks crashing out on the boat and, and then actually living in that marina. One thing I have found, though, is that there's plenty of times where the, the website or the people you talk to initially will say, no, we don't accept liveaboards. We only do what are called transient, you know, where you can stay on the boat if you're, you're moving and you know you might you might check into a marina for a few days, and obviously you can stay on the boat there. Uh, but for full on, you know, paying by the month sort of thing, it's uh, it's not possible. But what I have found, especially with sort of the smaller locally owned marinas, is that once you get to know the people and they get to know you, you uh, can sometimes pass the test, so to speak, and you can worm your way right in, you know, if you're helpful and you're polite and you're, you're good about sort of just being an upstanding sailor, <laughs> then, uh, they actually want you to stay because, um, you know, these, these places, these marinas are a collection of, of people. It's like a, it's like a commune in a way, cause everybody's using all the same stuff and, uh, the facilities and everything. And as long as everybody sort of gets along and, you're essentially creating a community of, of sailors, like-minded people, and uh, you can have a lot of fun. You know, you have uh, you have big sort of uh, cooking nights and things like that, and pot roasts, and or what what is the word I'm looking for? It's where everybody brings a little little bit of food, and you have just sort of a big party. Anyway, you do that sort of stuff, campfires, um, you know cocktail hours on the dock which are always just an absolute blast and uh that's sort of i i'd say that's that's really what i enjoy most about 
sort of living in the marinas, you're you're in this collection of people, and um, you know that always has its ups and downs for sure. You know, you may walk into the the little shower room or something like that, and it's absolutely trashed, and you're just like, "Jeez!" And that's usually <laughs> the common thing is freaking transients coming in here, and it's not always the transients coming in doing that. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's kind of funny. But I, yeah, I, I typically will always, always look for that at least, at least the opportunity to sort of prove yourself, and uh, and then there's just some places that are are built for it, they're made for it, and uh, they accept all all the people. You can come in there, which I, you know, I kind of like those because you're typically going to find more people that are liveaboards there. And it is kind of funny. It's it's like moving into a apartment complex in a way, but a little more social than that, I would think. Whereas you're going to get to know all your neighbors um, pretty quickly because you're you're again using all the same facilities and such. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things where uh, it. I don't know. I, I like it. It's like a forced, uh, forced relationships. And I think in the end, it's, it's typically good if you're, if you're not afraid of, uh, you know, really being yourself and accepting other people and, and all that sort of stuff. So I don't know. That's, that's definitely one of the things I look for, but it's, it's pretty hard to find. I mean, I've been in all sorts of marinas. I mean, the, the most top end, high end one I was ever in was, was when I was stuck in ocean city uh, over this past spring and the only reason that I was even allowed in that place was the fact that their season had not even begun you know they don't start hopping until June and it's literally almost a hundred percent sport fishing yachts and it's expensive the people there were absolutely phenomenal um, you know because of the situation of, of ducking in there to avoid uh, the nor'easter and everything and the, the bad weather that was going on while I was there. The ladies in the office were fantastic. Um, they, they pretty much, it was, it was exactly what I needed at that place at that time. But it was also one of those things where, whew, um, Sparrow definitely stuck out like a sore thumb <laughs> in that. And, and again, all the people that were there, uh, there weren't really any liveaboards. I doubt they, they allow that sort of thing, but it was, again, in that case, I was, I was more of a transient, but that, that sort of place wouldn't be what I would look for as far as posting up for a long winter or spending a summer or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm typically, I'm looking for a place that allows me to do whatever work I need to be done on the boat. And that, that comes with pros and cons as well. You know, if, when you're in one of those marinas and, and you can, I mean, you're, you know, sometimes it can feel like you're in a construction site when the boat next to you is sanding the cap rail and, uh, or doing some grinding or this, that, and the other thing. And there's just a lot of noise and dust and everything. And, and that's something you typically want to just be conscious about. There are, a lot of projects during the winter time at the last marina that I was at that I wouldn't do because I knew that I was going to do my little haul out period this summer and there's there's some projects that are appropriate for a boatyard that aren't really appropriate on the dock but 
it's also nice to be able to do something that, you know, you might be like, hey, you know, sorry, today I got to do this and it's going to be loud and and people around you, as long as you sort of say, hey, uh, give them a little fair warning, they're typically like, oh, go right ahead. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Um, but you can you can abuse and then lose that privilege pretty quickly if you're uh, not conscious of the fact that there's other people that live there. <clears throat> so I don't know. I kind of like that. The option to be able to do that, uh, but I, uh, you know, I, again, Sparrow's sort of more of a working boat rather than just a uh, a pleasure craft. So uh, I think I fall into a little bit different category than than sort of the average cruiser, um, in a good and a bad way, <laughs> to be honest. But. Yeah, I, you know, the amenities and, and things like that, um, Mike talks about a lot about that in his article. And I think I think when we're talking about stuff like that, it's uh, the more amenities you have, i.e. things like, um, you know, lounges and kitchens and workout centers and pools and, and all these sort of things, uh, those come with the price tag typically. I know when I was in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, I did that once for one month, and it was probably one of the most expensive stays uh, in a marina that I've ever had. And it was a nice place, but it was uh, it was really not a. It was just it was so expensive. Holy cow! And it did come with a lot of amenities and use of this sort of resort property. But boy, oh boy, um, I didn't use that stuff very often, and um, I don't know. I just I didn't I there weren't there weren't many other liveaboards, so I felt pretty isolated there, and that never feels all that good. You sort of I I'm always looking for a good community. I think I think more than almost anything, that's that's something I'm sort of always seeking out because it just makes life so much better when you're involved with other people and there's there's a social aspect to it and and all that sort of thing so um but yeah i don't know it's it's uh it's nice to have the amenities i mean i i think if i were to try to put together my ideal ideal marina it would be one positioned in a place that you know if if the wind comes out of any such direction on the compass you're still going to be very protected and there's not going to be any times where you're just thinking to yourself oh my gosh like i i can't even sleep on this boat we're rocking and bumping into this this dock so hard and i've seen places like that that uh, are just open to say one direction and if it blows out of there you're pretty much out of luck and that that happens up in rockland uh, we had, I remember one night, holy cow, this last, uh, so when I got up there, I was a bit early. The boatyard was still super packed and I had to be on the dock for, oh, like 10 days or something like that. And it was just a little bit of the dock that was in and there's lobster boats pulling up to the boat, bumping into Sparrow, all this stuff. People all constantly walking over the deck and, uh, but there was one night. And I don't mind that. It's just, you know, that's part of the game. But 
uh, one night where the wind shifted out of the northeast and boom, like the, the waves picked up, the dock starts moving, and I ended up having to like shift the boat around at 3 in the morning, and I had to be up at 6.30 to work and couldn't get back to sleep because of the noise. And anytime I wake up and have to actually physically do something that, that is not super easy, it's it's pretty hard for me to go right back to sleep, but... <clears throat> The guys saw how how sluggish I was the next day at work, and uh, we were we were hauled out pretty quickly after that. <laughs> so it necessitated it. Um, but yeah, I mean, ideally, you get one of those marinas that's that's fully fully protected, and and so that that just makes life uh, consistently just better in a marina. Uh, the next thing would in my ideal, ideal marina would just be a place where obviously you can live aboard the boat. It's not all that expensive um, because, you know, heck, you're really just paying for a dock slip. And uh, I don't know, I, when, when it starts getting up into the 500 to a thousand dollars a month sort of situation, plus you're paying for electricity, although Sparrow doesn't really have to, if, if I can dock in the right position and where the solar panels are facing, you know, typically the south uh, in the wintertime, then I can pretty much power myself the whole winter. But sometimes you can't do that. And sometimes you need a heater and the solar, it's not quite that strong. But um, yeah, it's, it's uh, ideally, you know, you're, you're protected from the weather. You've, you've got a decent little, uh, community around you and it's not crazy expensive as far as the amenities go really for me a nice a nice setup as far as having uh, a decent amount of bathrooms and showers uh, I mean I, I typically find that it's it's usually two or three of them depending on how so, how what the size of the marina is uh, but even that can get a little stressed, but you know, it's one of those things where I just find, <clears throat> I wake up so early in the morning, I, I get all that sort of stuff done before anybody else is even awake. And that's, that's fine by me. It's usually pretty easy to figure out when the traffic jam, so to speak, will be happening and just avoid that. But you know, if it has laundry, there's nothing worse than having to sort of, <laughs> and boy, that's, that is a first world problem right there. It's nothing worse than having to take your laundry like across the street to a laundromat. Oh man. Yeah, take that for granted, do you? But it is kind of nice to have a couple machines at the at the marina, and most of them do. And that just I don't know, makes uh life a little easier, which is always kind of nice. Schlepping the old uh the old laundry around. And then yeah, I don't know. Um Really, for me, being able to sort of tinker with the boat a bit and all that sort of stuff, um, that's really, really sort of the key. Um, I have been at marinas where down south it's a bit buggy, so to speak. Uh, and by that, I mean it's horrific <laughs> where you don't even want to go outside for hours of the day because the bugs are just swarming on top of you and they're biting you and making you hallucinate because you're injected with so much venom or whatever it is they have in them. Oh my gosh. Oh, 
it's just one of those things, though. That's going to be regional, I suppose, and uh, it's just something you have to put up with uh, if you're if you're in a marina that's way up in these rivers and these marshes and things like that. <clears throat> but I'm gonna be I'm gonna be on the search for a uh, a new marina this this winter, I think, unless I end up down in the Caribbean or out at sea for a while. It's uh, it's really one of those things. Where I, I think I want to be a little further north, because in the past I've been down in Buford, South Carolina, but now I'm sort of thinking some of the other ones that I've heard of are in like Newburn or Oriental or Deltaville. I think those three are are the ones that I'm going to sort of research and reach out to. And one of the cool things when you get to know some dock masters and things like that, they're a pretty tight-knit community, and uh, sometimes they can be your reference as far as, you know, if you're trying to get into a place that's a little on the edge of live aboard or not, and uh, they can maybe place a call or two, uh, you know, just like anything in life, relationships uh, <clears throat> come in handy, so... Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be, it's going to be kind of interesting, you know, going into some uncharted, uncharted parts of the ICW and such. I'll do the trip. If I end up going to a marina, let's say around the Cape Hatteras, uh, Virginia sort of area, then it's going to be that offshore route of pretty much past, past, uh, Cape Cod and George's Bank and then due south across the Gulf Stream and then head far enough south that I can hopefully catch a nice southerly breeze and reach right back into shore, probably between seven and ten days. But I have had that trip uh, go pretty pretty ugly and uh, get blasted by a really strong southwesterly gale. Go hove to for about three days and then try and work my way back towards the towards the uh, continental shelf. Oh man, I. Jeez, I remember that one. That was so boring. I got a lot of reading done, but I was tilted over at like 20 degrees for three days, bouncing up and down on these waves. And gosh, the worst part about that whole situation was my refrigerator was on the fritz. And I had all this bacon and meat and all this other fresh food that I was you know, it, it, that the weather came in only about two days out. So I hadn't even really tapped into it because I, I typically wait for a day or two, get the hunger uh, pains really coming in so that I'm, I'm super ready to just cook some really great stuff and, and dive into some food. And, and then all of a sudden I'm hove to and, and I'm eating just cold cans of SpaghettiOs or whatever. But then, you know, the other food's starting to go off. It's always... Always a big, big, uh, scary situation. You don't want to, I mean, you always take plenty of the other stuff, but you never want to see the good stuff go. You're, you're hoping to get into some great weather for three or four days and do have some, and some fine dining experiences. At least that's how I think about it. I, uh, I had on the last trip, I had a great, or not the last trip, I don't know, a couple trips ago, whatever, <clears throat> Brought a whole ton of cauliflower so I could make those cauliflower pizzas, and I had an absolute blast doing that. Uh, it, it turned into sort of like an event, and we we had plenty of really lighter wind conditions where 
the sea was flat and we were just sailing and sailing and sailing and it was super comfortable portholes open i mean you know the rarest of the rare watching movies projected onto the mainsail man that was a good one oh i gotta take a little pause hold on and we're back. Oh, geez. All right. So uh, I'm sort of losing myself in the weeds here, going off on a little sailing story tangent. Back to the old marinas here. Um, yeah, some of the, <laughs> one of the other things that I wasn't really aware of until uh, a buddy of mine, Eli, from way, way back in the podcast, uh, the the beekeeper, the beekeeper slash sailor, who, uh, gosh almighty, I got to have him back on the show. If I ever bump into him again, man. Uh, But he stays in a marina up there in the Philadelphia area, of all places. And that's where he keeps his bees, somewhere somewhere up in that region. But uh, I believe it's like a city marina. And uh, from what I understand, it's a a little bit on the derelict side. And not, not, you know, fully used or anything like that. But they do have uh, a boatyard there. And this is a capability that... Uh, I think it's overlooked by a lot of places. Uh, most of the marinas I've been in do not have a boatyard. So if you want to haul out for some serious projects or just to get the bottom repainted and, and or pressure washed, whatever, it's uh, you got to travel to that place and get that done. And then you gotta, you're essentially paying for your marina slip and you're paying for the haul out period. But if you... Uh, choose one of these marinas that actually has it and the one in um ocean city had that and supposedly this one in philadelphia has got it which would be pretty cool then you know if i was going to leave the boat for months um and take off to go do something else i would probably haul the boat and that way you don't have to worry about it sitting in that slip and uh having anything sort of go wrong because we, you know even when when a boat's just tied to a dock it has the capability of still sinking which I I don't know why I worry about that as much as I do but I definitely do and uh it's always a nice feeling when I get back to the boat and everything's fine and the bilge is completely dry and and all that sort of stuff the only time I never even have to think twice about sparrows when she's on the hard and uh and I know she's safe and sound on land but <clears throat> yeah having that having that boatyard available is is pretty key right there in the marina but uh and you know Mike goes on in his article to talk about which I thought was pretty funny they they haul him out and uh where the marina that he's in, they they hauled him out when he needed a lot of work done because I think he bought the boat uh, in pretty rough shape. And he says they, they put him out on what they called death row, which typically every boatyard's got it. And it's the furthest, you know, outback spot in the yard where most of the derelict boats end up, the ones that you know aren't going to touch the ocean ever again. And you're sort of, I mean, we, we sort of have that (laughs) at our place, you know, just, and it's not a, it's not a bad thing. It's just, you know, if you're, if your boat's not going in for a long time, if you're doing major projects, you know, you want to be off way out in the back where you're not going to disturb anybody because you're typically, if you're working on it, you're going to be the one who's grinding and glassing and sanding and painting and varnishing, doing all these things that necessitate a lot of noise and also a lot of, uh, I don't know, dust and debris and, and all that. I mean, you know, you typically go 
and you can just look around the ground around a boat and see how much work is actually getting done on that boat just by the detritus that is collecting around said vessel. Ah, uh, but yeah, it's pretty funny. You know, he talks about, oh man, he got he got hauled out and put in death row, and at first he was sort of like, dang, like this sucks. <laughs> but in the end, uh, I think he found that it was a very nice little spot to be because you're out of the public eye. You know, they they haul Sparrow out up at, at nights, and we we're I'm pretty much right in the heart of the of the boatyard. So it's, it's pretty hard for me to escape. And I think they do that on purpose because they, they want to be able to grab me at a moment's notice, uh, which is fine. And I, I definitely, because I'm working with them, I, I understand that. And I, I will, I will concede to that availability, <clears throat> but it is always kind of nice to, uh, be a little further, further in the back and, and be able to sort of, I don't know, you, you don't really feel isolated, I would say, but you feel it's a little more private. Uh, let's just say that. So uh, that's pretty funny about about the old marina li- or boatyard life. It's it is. I don't know. I, I I'd have a hard time choosing between if I if I you know if I go down south, if I could find a boatyard that would let me live while on the boat in on the hard. I don't know if I would choose that over the marina if I was if I knew I'm planning on just sticking in some place uh, for the winter and I'd be off and on the boat sort of thing, but vast majority of it living on the boat. I don't know. Part of me thinks that the boat, like hauled out of the water, would be a little better. But uh, again, there's there's pros and cons to all this sort of stuff. It's it's sort of weighing your options because when you're on the hard, you're you're climbing a ladder fifty times a day which besides being great exercise is also a little sketchy when you're trying to carry a bunch of groceries or a 24-pack of ice-cold bush lights up and down that ladder. It, uh, I've never fallen off the ladder, knock on wood, but, uh, you know, eventually it could happen. Who knows? Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It's it, it's kind of interesting to to sort of peel through my brain but yeah, again, I you know, with the ideal one, ideal marina, I guess has it all and it has a good community. I think I think if anything, well, let's let's attack this from a different angle. <clears throat> what would make me want to move and get out of a marina faster than any other thing? I think it would probably be if the community was really just not a good one and you didn't get along with the people and you you know, you're, you're essentially trying to avoid people when you see them, you're sort of like, Oh yeah. And you go right back, back down below on the boat. Uh, and I don't know. Uh, yeah, I would say that that's, that's probably then the most important thing is that you find a, a, a good group of people to, to be sharing a Marina with and, or a boatyard. Um, and I think typically you're going to find that more and more, uh, at the small local marinas that, uh, Aren't aren't big corporate giants with lots of rules, huh? Let's just let's just say that right now. <laughs> oh man, pretty pretty cool. I guess that's my tirade on on marinas and uh, and that sort of stuff. Uh, I do look forward to it. I must say, I look forward to getting back into the water, doing some sailing, and I guess you know that that's probably the one last thing that that would trump 
being in the boatyard as opposed to being in a marina. You know, at least when you're in a marina and you're floating, you have the option in a moment's notice to untie and set sail for another place. And isn't that really what we're all thinking goes into sailing? It's that whole romanticism of, ah, the far off horizon, tropical islands, you know, all that sort of stuff. Sunsets and stars out at sea. That is really the dream. And the reality, yeah, is a little bit different than that, but it does include that. And I think that's uh, that's something that... Uh, I don't know. I think it drags a lot of people into the situation where they figure, you know what, I'm going to go give it a shot. I'm going to try. I'm going to buy that boat and we'll see what happens. And, uh, you know, I think more often than not, no matter what the experience, it's going to be a bit of a life-changing experience and might be good, might be bad. But in the end, all life is really is just a collection of experiences and uh, growing as a person. So that's that's uh, deep thoughts right here from from old J Rome in the woods. <clears throat> so, <laughs> uh, I yeah I don't know I'm trying to think uh, what else I had on the old plate uh, for for today's little episode. I figured I would do a solo one because uh, I've been sitting down with quite a few people, and the next bunch I have are all me sitting down having conversations and such. But I do. I do like the uh, the lone ramblings of the woodland creature out here. I had some funny noises again last night around the tent, but uh, pretty much at this point, sleeping right through them. Wake up and be like, boy, that's a weird noise. Right back to bed. I think partly because it's cold and I'm so wrapped up in so many blankets, uh, you know, you can just toss them right over your head and forget the world around you. And so that's been really nice and you know, sort of breaking from the heat because, boy, when we left Maine, geez, or when I left Maine, gosh, I always say that, that we, it's like uh, Sparrow's my life partner, <laughs> whether I'm physically on the boat or uh, away, it's uh, it's always going to be a we from now on, you know, she moved to France, actually, no, we doesn't even mean that, gosh, I need another cup of coffee, people, I think that's the key, oh, geez, <clears throat> But yeah, I don't know. Uh, my time up here has, it's it's slowly shrinking down uh, into probably uh, two weeks or less before I head on back. I got a call from my buddy Dave working at the yard. He said, uh, he said job's not quite the same. And you know what? That's one of the biggest compliments I think uh, anybody can give as long as they're saying that in a positive light, uh, obviously. But, um, you know... When you're working a job with a team of people and one of those team members takes off and uh, you get to see what it's like not having that person there, it really can sometimes be an eye-opener of like, wow, that person actually brings a decent amount of uh, not only value in the work that they do, but value in the uh, the attitude that they have and the personality to take a job, a daily sort of grind sort of job and turn it into at least a bit more fun experience. And that's something I've always tried, you know, tried to strive to do is create a, a good, fun working culture. Because, hey, if you're going to be doing something for eight to 10 hours a day, five to seven days a week, you better be having some fun with it or getting paid a mountain of money. 
but the the latter, you know, you're only you're you're just trading trading misery for money, which I think in the end, uh, yeah, I would think most people would regret. I know I would. Um, I've never been in that situation where I've made a amount of money though. So uh, it's all speculation from this side of the table. Oh, geez. Uh, but yeah, it is. It was nice. And it'll be nice to get back up there. And it's it's a very different uh, vibe, though, between beginning, you know, in the spring, you're launching boats and you're watching people head off big smiling faces and such. And uh, sort of I get inspired because I, I see these people heading off to adventures and then the fall, we haul the boats, the season's over. People talk about things they didn't do. <laughs> Next year they'll do. Uh, and then, you know, you're placing their boat on the hard for the for the long, cold main winter. And I don't know, there's a bit of sadness in that, I suppose, but at the same time, it's uh, just gearing up for their second chance the next year to uh, go out and do all those things that they wanted to do. Myself included, you know, there's always, always going to be lots of goals and things like that, that I set that I don't ever make happen. And then, uh, you know, you just have to push them on down the line or reevaluate. Boy, these deep thoughts coming out of left field up here. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, um, it's going to be, it's going to be kind of interesting. I still have no, no real game plan. I have options. I have options. That's that's my my thing. I uh, I do the options thing, and I like like to wait until the end. I think one of my biggest issues, though, at this point, is just the sales. I'm gonna I'm gonna have the old sewing machine out for quite some time. Once I get back up there, I'm gonna I'm gonna restitch, which basically I'm gonna go over the old stitching on some of the the old main and and the staysail i'm going to be peeling through old bacon sales the uh online used concession i think that's the right word sales of of sales sales of sales uh where you can pick up used sales at a bargain basement price and uh, i've had a lot of success with them if i'm i'm gonna try my best to get Really, it's uh, I want to get one more staysail and one more mainsail because everything else I think will hold up pretty well after I go over it with the sewing machine. <clears throat> but I, you know, that's the only thing holding up the availability to to really head offshore for, you know, a good few months and do. I mean, I've done two laps of the Atlantic at this point over the last few years um, due to you know issues on the boat and issues with the world around me, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. I want to stretch the old sea legs a little bit more. Eh, but if it's not this year, it's not this year. Uh, one of the things that I've definitely learned over the last two trips is that uh, if you're not 100% prepared, then uh, chances are the ocean is going to figure that out, expose that weakness, and send you packing. And that's something that uh, after two failed trips, I know all too well, and I don't want to repeat for a third. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Option one, head out to sea. Go for a nice little three-, four-month adventure sailing in the north and the South Atlantic. Do my Atlantic 8, quote-unquote, uh, trip to, to sort of, you know, just spend some more time out there. The other option, sail down, hit up the old Caribbean. That one takes a little bit more quiche as well, um, just because... 
you gotta you gotta eat down there, and food not only is expensive in the states, but uh, when it has to get shipped, then again down south, it's uh, even more expensive. So the cost of living, even though you're on 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 anchor most times, but you know I don't even have a paddleboard anymore to to be able to get into shore. I have nothing. I used to have a dinghy. Those things are all gone, but uh, yeah. So I'd have to I'd have to sort of prep a few things to to be able to do that. But it would be really nice to reconnect with my Caribbean families down there. Um, do the old. I think I'd I'd want to do the the big island hop, you know, where get all the way down to a place like Grenada and then work my way back up, sort of thing. And then I don't know, see what possibilities are out there because I. Th- think after after doing sort of uh the same routine for the last few years i'm i don't know i'm ready to shake it up a little bit shake it up uh maybe a lot i don't know we'll we'll have to sort of see um but then the other option is to uh head down south somewhere here in the great united states and uh basically find a marina find a boatyard get the boat ready and then take off and uh forge forth with as much fury as possible into this podcast right here and try and nail down as many people all across our great nation uh, to sit down and chat with and see how see how this thing can grow and see how uh, how many people will actually sit down with me where we can where we can take it you know at its core as I always say it's going to be sailing and adventure but uh, that comes in so many different forms that it doesn't always have to be on a sailboat. Well, I suppose the sailing part of it does, but wow, I am rambling. Uh, but yeah, that's option number three. And uh, I don't know, option number four, I guess, would just be if I catch a good sight on a lobster boat up there in Maine, mothball the boat, prepare it for the winter, and uh, work work out on the sea for the entire winter and save as much money as I can. And, uh, I don't know, you know, that, that one's, that one's borderline of trading time for money. Um, I enjoy lobstering. I've only done a little bit of it, but it is, uh, it's a pretty fun, pretty interesting, very intensive, uh, sort of job, but it, you know, you get to spend your time out on the ocean. You're, you're pulling up what we always call lotto tickets because you never know what's in that in that little uh, trap and then you know typically if you got to be pretty good sight on a good boat that catches a lot of lobster you're you're going to be making a decent paycheck and um you know you do it throughout the winter i don't i don't know if the paycheck is better in the winter time hmm questions for maybe heath bomb when i get up there and uh talk to my old my old captain friends see what see what's sort of available it'd be an interesting uh chapter in life i think you know Look back on it when you're an old man. Uh, I remember that's that winter I fished for lobster. Oh, freezing cold. <laughs> be kind of cool. So I don't know. We'll we'll have to sort of see. But um, yeah, I mean, kind of. Those are my options. I've got uh, uh, at least two more months or a month and a half of straight work, and uh, that's going to be pretty intensive you know, six days a week sort of stuff coming up and that'll be good to sort of get a little pay dirt and, uh, before I leave. And then I also, also have to do some more work on Sparrow. We're going to haul or not haul, but we're going to, we're going to un, we're going to take the mast off of the boat so I can do some, some serious work on that. I got a bit of corrosion I got to deal with. 
and uh, and some wiring issues. But once that's done and the new winches are put on, then she can be put back together. And a little bit of work on Mongo, some parts needed for that one. Other than that, she's pretty stout and ready to go. And uh, I don't know. It only takes a little while of being on land before my feet need to feel the motion of the ocean. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Well, ah, this has been kind of a nice treat. I didn't, didn't really think I was going to do one of these uh, podcasts this morning because uh, I'm, I'm planning on sitting down with uh, somebody later on today. Uh, but, you know, sometimes when the itch is there, you got to scratch it. So that's exactly what I did. But I am going to leave you guys with uh, the latest of my little sailing stories that I've been posted on YouTube. <clears throat> Again, it's it's just been sort of fun to do that. I you know I can't I can't imagine the the channel is going to really go anywhere. But it is kind of fun to sort of record these things and uh, see how they they turn out. And, and it's nice to get all the comments and, and things like that from people. That's always pretty cool. Um, this is pretty supportive. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't gotten a whole lot of hate yet, <laughs> but I'm sure that that will come if, if uh, the popularity of it rises. Funny, you know, uh, channel gets more attention and, uh, and sort of the people come out of the woodwork to uh, try and Take a big steaming poo right onto it, <laughs> but whatever. So you don't don't dive too much into the comments, I suppose. But uh, yeah, so today uh, at the end, what I'd like to do is just uh, I'm gonna clip on the the story of Alfred Johnson, and it's kind of it's a quick one. It's nothing lengthy by any means, but uh, it was sort of a big part of the inspiration for me leaving from Gloucester, Massachusetts, and trying to add. A little bit, add a chapter, so to speak, to its storied history when it comes to sailing and seafaring uh, adventure, uh, because Alfred basically was the first person to uh, sail solo across the Atlantic Ocean. Um, pretty epic little thing, and um, you know, happened back in 1876. Well, I'll let the I'll let the story unfold for you, but uh, other than that, I think. I think that's pretty much it. Before I go, as I always say, if you want to support the podcast, which many of you are doing, and I really, really appreciate it. It's helping me out a lot. Um, just head over to Patreon. Uh, the link will be in the description. And then also, if you want to contact the show, feel free to head over to sailingintooblivion.com and click on the podcast, and you'll find the contact info and everything right then and there. So other than that, uh, enjoy this story, enjoy the rest of the summer, and uh, the next time you hear from me, it'll be with uh, another one of my guests. So, we shall see. All right, enjoy. Welcome to Sailing Stories. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Today, before Robin Knox Johnson ever sailed around the world, and before Joshua Slocum did his three-year odyssey around the planet in 1896, there was a man who set sail on a 20-foot wooden dory across the Atlantic uh, alone and uh, pretty much on a dare, so to speak. And that man is Alfred Johnson. He left from Gloucester, Massachusetts in 1876 to celebrate the 100-year anniversary of America. And it really is truly uh, an epic, epic tale. So our story begins at a card table, funny enough, and the argument that ensued was essentially whether or not uh, one of these small little 
Gloucester Dories could make it across the Atlantic with a lone sailor. And Alfred Johnson just happened to be one of the people at that card table, and he said absolutely he could do it. Not only could he do it, he could do it in a boat so small it was only 16 feet on the waterline. And he said essentially that uh, once he had enough money, he was going to go for it, and uh, he would show all of them. And that's exactly what he ended up doing. So he he gets together about, I think it cost him about $200 to purchase the boat and all the provisions and everything. And, you know, I'm sure he, he had plenty of people telling him, yeah, man, this is great. You can do it. Uh, but there must have been plenty of naysayers that were thinking that he had sealed his fate and he would never be seen again. But he took off in June, which is actually a pretty good time to leave. Uh, the North Atlantic is at its tamest in the month of July, so that would have been in the middle of this trip. And he takes off, uh, but it's only it's only a little while before he realizes that there's something wrong with the compass, and so he pulls into Nova Scotia uh, in a place called Barrington, and he ends up reballasting because on the bottom of this this dory is a big iron shoe, so a big iron weight, and uh, he thinks it's sort of a little little screwing with the compass, and he's definitely going to want that and need that to to find his way over to uh, to England, and essentially uh, sets right back off and he's open ocean going for it from that point on. And, you know, he's he keeps seeing passing ships and every time a ship sees this little tiny dory out there, they're come right over there thinking that, hell, man, he must have gotten blown away from his fishing fleet and they're going to help him. And then he says, no, no, I'm, I'm going for a big rip. And they're absolutely shocked by it because back at this time uh, in sailing's history, boats really only had one purpose, and that was to make money. And Slocum always used to say when he was building his boat, everybody asked, will she pay? And that basically means, is that boat going to make you any money or what? And the whole idea of pleasure cruising and adventure sailing really uh, hadn't really come into play quite yet at this point. And so they were pretty shocked to find that he was just going for this long challenge of trying to be the first person to sail across the Atlantic alone. And so, you know, he this happens quite a bit because there's a decent amount of shipping, especially at that time of the year. And uh, yeah, he's uh, constantly having to wave these guys off, which I'm sure did kind of help a little bit with his peace of mind as far as there's... You know, if he got into some serious trouble, chances are he might actually get uh, rescued instead of just going out on this vast ocean and this tiny boat with no one else around. But he keeps going and going, and within about a month or so of the uh, adventure, he gets his first bout of really bad weather. Now, he's a fisherman, so he knows the sea. He's been out there, and these dories... Typically, you know, you think, wow, 16 feet. So I think it was 20 feet overall. That's a really, really small boat to do it. But these are tried and true tested little boats. Uh, Essentially, you'd have a bunch of them. They go out on a schooner. They send these little dories out. They're fishing for cod or whatever on their own. And then they bring the catch back to the mothership. And a lot of times they get caught in really bad weather and they have to weather the storm. And it's one of those things where... Those those little boats were built to to be able to withstand quite a quite a quite a gale, and so 
he's in this little guy and uh, he sees the the telltale signs of a coming storm. And so he ends up actually taking the mask down and lashing himself in. He ties off a big line and without without too much time passing, he ends up getting broadsided by a big breaking wave. The boat gets tipped over. He's launched into the sea. He's luckily tied on, so he's able to cling on to the boat. And uh, eventually another wave hits and then rights the vessel for him. But essentially on this little open boat, he's he's pretty much, uh, he's he's really affected everything that he's had on the boat. So his navigation equipment is pretty messed up. His clocks aren't working anymore. His food supply is definitely damaged and now dwindling. Uh, but he's out in the middle of the ocean. So what do you do? You have to just keep on going and gets everything basically set back up. And as he sees some of these passing ships again, they always keep checking on him because they're like, what in the heck is that guy doing out here? And, um, yeah, I guess, uh, uh, funny enough at one point, I guess one of these ships, uh, asks if, if they can help him if he needs anything. And, uh, he says that his whiskey supply has run out and he could use a couple of bottles of something. And they end up tying two bottles of rum to a, a little wooden float and throwing it overboard so he can collect that, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, you know, he could have asked for all the supplies in the world, but, uh, he just chose to do that. So priorities, I suppose. And at one point, He's got a big old shark that comes along and and is sort of rubbing up against the boat and he ends up making this little makeshift harpoon to try and sort of scare it away. So, I mean, that's got to be pretty scary. I've seen some pretty pretty decent sized sharks and whales and things like that and Sparrow, she's pretty strong and uh, and stout and to be in a smaller vessel like that and have a pretty large shark come up would be pretty scary because he's a lot closer to the water than I am. But in any event, uh, after after nearly uh, or after about two months, he he eventually does make it. He makes it over to a place called Aber Castle in South Wales and uh, pulls in there. And he is in, according to the reports, he's in a pretty much dire straight sort of state where he can barely supposedly he has to be sort of hauled off of the boat he's he's probably i i'm imagining you know essentially he probably looks like stephen callahan off of uh his off of his 76 day uh stint in his raft you know where he He's hungry, sunburnt, he's thirsty, all these things. And uh, it takes him two days to recuperate. But then he gets back in the boat and uh, he makes the little passage all the way over to Liverpool. Sails in there uh, to a massive reception after 66 days out at sea. And uh, right into the record books, really. He, He accomplishes the feat of being the first person. And I think one of the funniest things about the whole thing Every time he asked why he did this, he's always said the same thing, because I'm a damn fool, just like they said I was. And uh, I think it's one of those things where when you attempt these these really perilous voyages, there is, there is something to be said about, uh, you know, sort of knowing that it's a pretty foolhardy thing to do. But again, there's a craving for that sort of experience and... I don't know what it is about it, but uh, it's hooked me in many a time. And so, uh, I don't know. I could say the same about myself. But he does. He was very adamant that he would never, ever do that voyage again. When he brought the boat back to 
the States. It was brought back on, on the deck of a steamship, and, uh, and now it sits in the Cape Ann Museum uh, right there in or near Gloucester, and it's the Centennial, and he was uh, forever after dubbed Alfred Centennial Johnson, which is pretty epic, and uh, went down into the, the history books of Gloucester. And really, it was. It was a big reason why I ended up sort of leaving from Gloucester because I wanted to add, I guess, a little chapter to to that history. And uh, and it felt really good to sort of be among those among those uh, those storied sailors. So pretty pretty cool stuff. Uh, it really is quite a quite an incredible journey that he went on, and uh, definitely foolhardy. But hey, you know if you're going to push the bar, that's uh, that's the only way to do it. And so there's there's plenty of information on it if you just uh, go online and and check it out. But uh, it's a really enthralling story, and I'm definitely giving you the condensed version but very very cool stuff and uh, that is the story of alfred centennial johnson